Well, this will be our seventh week, our seventh session on hermeneutics, and we're in the portion dealing with Bible study methods, or if you want to use the technical word, exegesis. And before we get started, uh, Dane, do you want to open in a word of prayer for us? Sure. Dear Jesus, we thank you for your revealed word. We thank you that you've provided us with it and with the Holy Spirit that we can understand and interpret being led into all truth. I ask for your hand upon our study today and that we all grasp the course material so we're able to apply it to an accurate study of your word. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, the last couple of weeks, I've been giving you some of the principles relating to exegesis after a little introduction to the whole area of exegesis we started looking looking at the area of observation and that's where we will continue today so we're dealing with the science and art of interpretation particularly the art portion that requires Developing the skill of interpreting, and we call that exegesis. So last couple of weeks, we were observing terms. We didn't quite complete that that first week. In fact, we just got into it. We focused on terms. And last time, we focused on observing structure. The two major areas of Bible study, looking at individual words, those are terms. A term is defined as a particular word in a particular context. So when you're in the biblical text, I gave you several things to consider when you observe just the individual terms or individual words. Structure can be defined as relationships of terms how all of the words in a particular passage relate to one another. We looked at two major areas of structure. We talked about within a sentence. And structure within a sentence we call grammatical or syntactical structure. So you want to make observations concerning everything within a sentence. And then there's that broader area that we described as literary structure, which involves observing relationships outside of a sentence primarily. It can include things within a sentence, but it looks at the broader passages all the way up to a book. In other words, how does an author structure the material that he wants us to to read and consider. And I think good literature, you can discern and, and find structure in all good literature. And when we come to scripture, we have some of the best literature that has ever been written. So authors structure or put together their material in certain patterns or certain ways, not only on a divisional level, but all the way down to 
even within a sentence. And there are a variety of literary devices that can be used, structural patterns, ways of organizing material. And we spent all of our time last week looking at many of them. So today, what we want to do is take it to the next major category and talk about purpose. Very important to observe a purpose of a passage. And when we speak of a purpose, it not only includes just a particular sentence. In other words, you want to ask yourself the question, why did the author insert this sentence? But it can involve things within a sentence all the way down to a word. Why did uh, an author select this particular word rather than perhaps a different word? And if you're in the Old Testament, for example, you're going to see in the book of Genesis, for example, chapter 1. Throughout the chapter, Moses uses Elohim. And that's the only word and term that he uses for God. But uh, when you get into chapter 2 and chapter 3, you find that he uses Elohim Yahweh, or Lord, the Lord God. And he uses that double reference to God throughout that passage. So immediately the question you might ask is, is why did he change names here? Or why is he using Elohim only in Genesis chapter 1? So when you deal with purpose, you're asking the question, why did an author select a word? Why did he select this phrase? Or why is this phrase in this passage? Why does this, why does this sentence exist in this paragraph? Uh, why does this paragraph exist all the way to the book level? Why did the author write this entire book? So this is a very important observation to make. So not only do you look at individual terms, and not only do you look for how did the author arrange all of those terms grammatically in structure and more broadly as you look at the whole book, but you want to do the same thing in terms of asking the question, why? The question why begins to lead you into other areas, particularly interpretation, and it also leads you to application. So it's good to ask that question. Now, you don't need to ask it all the time, but you want to be conscious that this is one of the things that you want to take a look at in observation. So let's spend a few minutes talking about purpose and what purpose is all about. And we're going to develop more in detail some of the things that I want to introduce here in terms of purpose, but this will also serve by way of illustration in terms of some of the bigger, broader questions that you want to ask. When we're talking about purpose, first of all, we want to look at the difference between books, different books. And I'm just using this as an illustration. For example, historical books have a different purpose just in terms of the overall genre. They have a different purpose than, say, epistles. 
So let's use that a little bit as an illustration. And you'll see in a moment from a couple of illustrations I'm going to give you that it's important to not only understand that you're dealing with genre, but it's important to understand what is the purpose of this particular genre. For example, historical books. Historical books primarily narrate historical events. That's one of the main purposes. Now, you might say, well, that's kind of obvious. Well, it comes into play in interpretation. I'll show you in a moment. In contrast to, say, epistles that are not historical books, even though an epistle may have a few references to historical notes, like who the author is, maybe the the readers, maybe a reference to some situation, maybe. But in general, they are not historical. They have a different purpose. They primarily address issues in the churches, and the writers address those issues using biblical principles. So they tend to be, and we'll talk a lot more about this when we talk about Special hermeneutics. In fact, I'll go into some detail. I'm just giving you a kind of an introduction here to the difference between historical books and epistles. So in dealing with biblical principles, they tend to be more teaching, more didactic, if you will, than historical books. So when you go to a historical book and you're reading a historical book, its purpose is to lay out historical events. Now, certainly it teaches certain things, but it does it in a different way, and it's not as didactic as epistles. Secondly, epistles are also, one of their characteristics is to set forth doctrine for Christian living. And this is where we derive primarily our doctrine, is from the the epistles. And I just introduced this to give an example of how it, how you can come up with doctrine that is in error, that is not accurate to Scripture overall, simply by failing to observe the difference between historical books and epistles. By failing to observe, for example, the purpose of a historical book. Now, let me use the book of Acts as an example. And from the book of Acts, it's not uncommon for even good Bible teachers sometimes to derive doctrine from the book of Acts. Now, I think that is an error in that that is not the intention of historical books. Now, you might be able to see a doctrine illustrated in a historical book, but if that book is the only source of that doctrine, then more than likely it is a shaky doctrine. Now, let me give you an illustration that is uh, hopefully very evident. And in using this illustration, I don't want you to misunderstand that I have any necessarily any problem with charismatics. In fact, I have a lot of friends that are charismatic, and as an early believer, most of my friends, in fact, were were within the charismatic movement, or many of them spoke in tongues, etc. 
but it's common, so I'm not denigrating them. I just have a disagreement with some of the doctrines that they've come up with, and some of the doctrines that I have a disagreement over are those doctrines that are based on the book of Acts, and particularly the issue of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, or they see it as a second and later blessing that the believer receives after conversion, then after after that, they believe that you have a second blessing, and they call it the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But it is based solely on the book of Acts, and you can't find that anywhere, that idea of a subsequent blessing. You can't find that in the epistles. So the point I'm making is a failure to observe the purpose of the book of Acts can, in fact, lead you to an erroneous doctrine. If that is the only place that you are basing a doctrine from, then it is probably not a solid and real uh, biblical doctrine. Uh, Does that make sense? In other words, that illustration there? I'm going to give you, uh, I'm going to kind of expand this in a moment here. But before I get into further explaining that example, where do we go? And this is a little bit of a sidelight, but I think it's important to make it because it'll help you to think in terms of what is the purpose of the book that I'm dealing with. And it'll also cement in your mind Where do we establish doctrine? How do we determine what are the not only the major doctrines of Scripture, but any specific, less important doctrines uh, in Scripture? Where do we find them? Well, first of all, if it's a major doctrine, you should find, at least in seed form, they should be introduced in the Old Testament. In other words, you may have some passage in the Old Testament that give us a a little introduction. It's not necessarily fully developed because of progress of revelation. Remember that hermeneutical principle? But if it's a major doctrine, you ought to be able to find it at least illustrated in the Old Testament. I've used the doctrine of the Trinity, and I've said that the doctrine of the Trinity is not fully developed in the Old Testament, but you can see hints of it at least. In fact, you can see hints of it even in Genesis 1.1. I gave you the illustration of Elohim being in the print of the plural. Elohim being the Hebrew word for, for God in Genesis 1.1. So you can find in seed form. And in Genesis 3, you can find all of the major elements of the doctrine of salvation. In fact, other doctrines related to the doctrine of salvation as well. So you find them introduced in the Old Testament. Secondly, you can consult the teachings of Jesus, and Jesus will deal with all of the major doctrines, and sometimes in overt sermons, sometimes in other passages, in formal teaching, he will deal with major doctrines. So if you can find in seed form in the Old Testament, or at least in introductory form, and you find in Jesus' teaching the same doctrine, uh, then you're on the way to establishing at least a major doctrine. And you set your doctrine from the doctrinal books, not historical books. So now from the historical books, 
Now you flesh out in more detail whatever doctrine you're dealing with. So if these three contribute to a doctrine, more than likely it's a major doctrine. Now, lesser doctrines you can base sometimes solely on uh, the epistolary books or the books that are designed to set forth doctrine. So in historical narrative, the fourth point I've got on the slide there, you may find illustrations of those doctrines, but be careful not to formulate the doctrine from the historical narrative books, whether Old Testament or the Book of Acts or the Gospels, but look for their formulation in the letters. And once you do that, then when you are in a historical narrative, now if a doctrine exists there, then you might have an illustration of it. And uh, now you can teach it as a doctrinal issue in that passage, but it's not based on the book of Acts or it's not based on the Gospels. It's based on passages in the epistles. So that's kind of a little sidelight just to kind of illustrate. Now, just to kind of bring that closer to home, in terms of uh, the book of Acts, I gave you the illustration of one doctrine, and I've come up with a series of other doctrines, some of them kind of a little bit exaggerating here, but uh, I want to make the point that uh, you don't want to set forth your doctrine from historical books. And we'll use the book of Acts as an example. I gave you the example of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 2, where we have the day of Pentecost, the record of the day of Pentecost, this is the introduction to this indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, this idea of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And historically, it does take place sequentially, and we have it in the book of Acts. And you have another illustration in Acts chapter 8 with the Samaritans. And in that, uh, you have different elements relating to the, the Holy Spirit here. In some cases, they're speaking in tongues. In other cases, there's not. Uh, similarly, in chapter 10, after the incident of Cornelius, you have another example of the receiving of the Holy Spirit in sequence. So the Charismatics take at least these three passages, and some of them will even use chapter 19 as an example of the baptism of the Holy Spirit following, after some time, after conversion, then a second blessing. But it's entirely based on Acts chapter 2, 8, 10, and sometimes 19. But you don't have that same thing when you go to any of the letters. In fact, in the book of Romans and in other passages, Romans chapter 6, we have uh, the, the conversion experience simultaneous with the receiving of the Holy Spirit and not a second blessing. And you can see that illustrated, or not illustrated, but taught in other passages as well. So, the point I'm making is historical books don't set forth doctrine. They might illustrate doctrines. And, by the way, each of these passages illustrates something 
of the doctrine of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But historically, it's not the normative in terms of what God has established for the church in general. And this is true of leadership. You have kind of a development of leadership in the book of Acts. For example, uh, how do you select leaders? Now, you might, now this is kind of a ridiculous example, but in Acts chapter 1, we have the selecting of leaders by casting lots. Well, is that a church pattern? In other words, is this the way that we ought to select leaders in church today? By casting lots? Well, again, this happened historically, and there's some other background issues involved there where it was legitimate to do it on that first occasion. But you go to First Timothy, you go to Titus, and that gives you a lot more guidance to set forth a doctrine for selecting church leaders. You might even, here's another kind of ridiculous one, in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, after the massive conversion of thousands, after Peter's sermon, the text tells us that they sold everything and they laid uh, the proceeds at the feet of the apostles and they distributed everything such that everyone's needs were met. Well, some people use that as an example of communism within the church. Now, I think it's far-fetched, but again, it's based on only Acts chapter 2, and you can't find that basically anywhere else. Now, you've, there's a similar example later on in the book of Acts, but in terms of church practice, in terms of a particular doctrine, uh, if it's solely based on the book of Acts, then it's it's probably faulty. Here's a good one. I like this one. And most church leaders would love to implement uh, Acts chapter 5 as a pattern for church discipline. It sure cured the problem in the first century when Ananias and Sapphira were disciplined by Peter. But it's not a license to utilize the same uh, issue or the same... Uh, uh, way of implementing church discipline in the church today. So that was a historical situation. In fact, that's the only place anywhere where you have anything even remotely related to such a severe discipline as capital punishment as you have in Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira. But I'm just bringing these out just to kind of illustrate and in some cases, and these are a little bit ridiculous, but it's very common for Bible teachers to take a passage, uh, do an exposition on the passage, and then come up with these doctrines from that passage. You have to be very careful. Sometimes it will be legitimate if, in fact, that doctrine is based elsewhere in the epistles then you were dealing with a legitimate one. I'm bringing out these that are illegitimate because you don't find them anywhere else. Another pattern that some might come up with, they might say, well, how should you do evangelism? Book of Acts, Paul, almost all the time, he'll look for a synagogue, and he will present the gospel in the synagogue. Well, should we in the 21st century 
first go to the synagogue? Well, I think it's a good place, but it's not the first place. Uh, the situation has changed, and there's no pattern, there's no instruction anywhere else, but yet this is seemingly the pattern starting in uh, Acts chapter 13 with Paul. Evangelism began in the synagogue, and you see that in later passages as well. Infant baptism could be based on Acts chapter 16. I won't give you details. I'll let you look that one up. And again, it comes out of the book of Acts, and it's something that I don't think is necessarily a biblical practice at all. What about this one? Acts chapter 28, where after the shipwreck, there was a viper that came out of the fire and latched itself on the Apostle Paul. Uh, this, along with a passage in uh, chapter 16 of Mark, does that encourage this whole idea, as some have used, to try to give the idea that uh, believers can handle snakes if they have enough faith, etc.? Well, I think I've made my point with several mainly ridiculous examples out of the book of Acts. So, how do you determine a purpose? Sometimes the author will lay out a purpose. He might phrase his passage in such a way that it's easily discernible. But you can still ask some questions just from the material itself. Some books I've already illustrated, for example, in John chapter 20, for the whole book of the Gospel of John. Remember, we looked at that passage. We said that John tells us that he has selected amongst many miracles of the Lord Jesus Christ. He calls them signs. He selected seven major ones, and then he gives a capstone Miracle, you might say, the resurrection. And he tells us in chapter 20 that he has selected these, and he tells us the purpose, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and in believing, you may have eternal life. So the whole book of John, we have a purpose statement. So it's clear in John the purpose of the gospel. The book of Proverbs, for example, also in its introduction, the first six verses, overtly tells us that it is dealing with wisdom and it is designed to give fathers wisdom in teaching their sons or anyone that wants to involve themselves in wisdom, how to gain it and how to live in a wise way as well. Similarly, in the Gospel of Luke, I think we have something, it's not a purpose statement, but we have something of a statement that tells us the statement deals with Luke's Gospel and uh, lays out some of the reasoning and some of the, the processes that you used in writing the book. And it gives us an idea of the purpose of the book. He says in Luke 1, beginning verse 1, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things, things accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses 
and servants of the word have handed them down to us, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated, in other words, he did research, investigated everything, carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus. So he has sat down, done some research, and in that now he has organized it into the Gospel of Luke for the purpose of Luke. And the the main purpose is that he might know kind of the sequence of events relating to Jesus Christ. And then verse 4, so that you might know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. The things concerning Messiah, the things concerning Jesus Christ, the things relating to Jesus as the Son of God. So Luke lays out something of a purpose statement, uh, almost as clear as what John lays out in the Gospel of John in chapter 20. So let's talk about the types of purpose, the kinds of purpose that you can observe. And these are basic. These aren't necessarily exhaustive. But some passages are designed to exhort us. In other words, to motivate us to action or to motivate us in a direction. In some way, they encourage us along a certain path, if you will, or a lifestyle. And passages that have a lot of commands oftentimes are exhortational. One example, First Peter 1, verses 15 and 16, But like the Holy One who called you, be holy. Now, we're just dealing with the English, but in the Greek text, that's an aorist imperative. Be holy yourselves also. That's the strongest command in the Greek language, aorist imperative. Be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, and then he quotes from Leviticus, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So if you have a passage that has an exhortation, then at least that portion, if not maybe the larger portion that you're dealing with, um, maybe the primary purpose of that particular sentence might be to exhort. and. Virtually all commandments, all commands, Old Testament and New Testament, are designed to move us to act or to change behavior or to do certain things. Romans 12, I think the beginning of the passage uh, that deals primarily with application, the first two verses there, basically our exhortation. In other words, now, after setting forth all of these doctrines from chapters 1 through 11, primarily doctrines relating to soteriology, therefore, I urge you, there's an exhortational word, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship, And he adds to it, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. 
so exhortational. And you'll find in chapter 12 and virtually the rest of the book of Romans, it tends to be more exhortational, whereas before you didn't have exhortations in the book of Romans. So we have that particular purpose to exhort. Some passages are designed to comfort. And they're not only comforting in the the selection of words, but they're comforting sometimes even in uh, the encouragement that they give. Paul, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he lays out the doctrine of the rapture. And it's just not to satisfy curiosity. It's not just necessarily to teach. But uh, how does he end the passage? In verse 18, uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, 4, 18, Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And if you develop the context, you realize that that passage is written in the context of the Thessalonians probably losing family members or friends, acquaintances, they were dying. And Paul had taught them a lot of eschatology, and now they're a little confused concerning, did they miss out on the rapture? Did they miss out on the resurrection? And I think Paul corrects these thoughts, these ideas, these false ideas. And now it's a comfort, because now they can rest. Oh, my relative, my cousin, or whatever, that died, they will not miss out. They will be raised first, in fact, is what Paul tells us. So he closes that little paragraph with comforting words, telling us the purpose of that whole paragraph, more than likely, tying that together with the beginning of that discussion. Lots of passages are designed to convince. And when we say convince, in other words, there's probably argumentation. So if you have a book like the book of Romans that lays out statement after statement, one following the other, he's building a case He's making an argument here. He's trying to convince us of particular doctrines in the book of Romans, many of them relating to soteriology or the doctrine of salvation, but he also deals with other doctrines as well, the doctrine of man, the nature of man. But the book primarily up until chapter 12 designed to convince I won't say anything about the book of Ephesians, but you might see that it probably falls, most of it, in this category as well. Purpose is to convince. There's some passages that are designed to warn. In fact, many prophetic passages are designed to warn us concerning either a wrong direction. In fact, the prophets of the Old Testament warned the nation of Israel and encourage them to repent. So a lot of passages that are designed to warn oftentimes are very explicit in calling on uh, the reader to repent. An illustration of this would be Revelation chapter 2, 16. John, the writer, says, Therefore, repent, 
or else I'm coming quickly to you. Now, he's already laid out some other uh, instruction, but he urges them to repent. He's coming quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. So he's going to bring discipline. So it's a warning to, to change. So it's even stronger than simply exhortation. It is much more pointed and oftentimes gives consequences as well. So a word may be in a context of warning. A whole sentence may be a sentence of warning. A whole paragraph might be designed to warn. And perhaps even an entire book. The main element might be that of warning. Fifthly, some passages are designed to illustrate. Now, the book of Romans, I've been using it, I'm kind of working in that and teaching it right now, so a lot of illustrations come to mind from the book of Romans. The book, as I've said, is primarily doctrinal, at least all the way through the end of chapter 11. And... Paul, in Romans chapter 7, he talks about marriage in that context. Obviously, this is right after chapter 6, very doctrinal. In fact, most of chapter 7 is very doctrinal. 8, that whole section, that whole division is doctrinal. But now in chapter 7, he talks about marriage. Has he diverted from soteriology to more practical issues dealing with marriage? Because he makes some statements about marriage in that context. Well, if you look at the context, he's using the marriage relationship. And when a marriage relationship ends at death, he's using that to illustrate the doctrine that he was talking about in chapter 6, where he's talking about dying to sin, dying to the flesh. So he's not teaching on marriage per se, even though it's within a doctrinal portion of the book, but he's using it as an illustration, and he's taking an element of marriage to illustrate the doctrine that he's just developed. And then he's going to carry that doctrine further after the illustration. So... You can use illustrations, and I think you're familiar. You use illustrations to illustrate truths, and here's an example in a in a doctrinal book. And obviously, sometimes entire books are designed to illustrate as well. Uh, parables, when we talk about the nature of parables, they primarily illustrate truth. So you have to be careful not to derive doctrine from parables, but look for the main point of illustration in a parable. That's what the author is trying to do by utilizing a parable, because that's the nature of a parable. So that's the question you ask. What is going on in this passage? Is it exhorting? Is it comforting? Is it convincing? Is it warning? Is it illustrating? And once you have understood that, now you can more easily apply it. A passage that is comforting, 
You can apply it by utilizing that passage in a situation that requires comfort, because that's the design of the passage. And it'll help you in coming up with valid applications of passages. So number six, some passages simply assure us, give us assurance of maybe particular doctrines or assurance of promises or assurance of God's plan. A good example would be 1 John 5, 13, where it says these things, and John just is explicit here. He says, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, in this context, it's assurance of eternal life to assure. And if you develop the surrounding verses in that context, you'll see that there are some other assuring words that he uses in uh, giving the assurance of eternal life. So some passages have that as a purpose or even some sentences and perhaps even some books. In fact, in large measure, First John has a lot of assuring statements within it as well. Some passages are designed to correct, to correct wrong practice primarily, sometimes wrong doctrine, and if that's the case, then uh, you give attention to what is being corrected there. Probably the classic book where you have lots of correction is First Corinthians. You have lots of correction there. Some passages uh, have a purpose of prophesying, and in this case, primarily to foretell certain things, to understand, to, to understand the plan that God has and, and how that plan will work itself out. So a purpose to prophesy. And like I said, these are some of the major categories in terms of of purpose. So this is a whole area where you want to make observations. And in this case, we're observing why does the author use this word? Why does this author insert this sentence? Why does this paragraph exist in this sequence of paragraphs? And all the way to a book, why did the author write this book? So observation of purpose, very, very important. And particularly, as I said, I tried to give you a drastic example where you can come up with even wrong doctrine if you fail to uh, observe the, the distinction between historical narrative and epistolary literature. So we've looked at observing terms, major category. Secondly, we've looked at structure. You'll spend most of your time observing all of the elements of structure in a passage. And we've looked at purpose. What is a, what is the purpose of this particular passage I'm looking at? And, uh, I'm just going to touch on this again. We're going to spend a lot of time later on literary form. And let me just remind you that uh, we have some of the best literature in all of the world that has ever 
been written, and literature utilizes different ways of communicating. We call that literary form, or another word for it is genre. And uh, Leland Riken says the following in terms of literary form. He's talking about the Bible. It, it does present real, living people, but it is also, it's replete with adventure, marvelous events. And I'm quoting here. Uh, is replete, start the quote, is replete with adventure, marvelous events, battles, supernatural characters, villains, brave heroes, beautiful and courageous heroines. Dungeons, quests, rescue stories, romantic love, boy heroes, biblical literature is alive. Biblical scholars have too often given the impression that the Bible literature is a dry-as-dust document to be cut up and to put on display as a relic of ancient cultures. So Riken argues against that and and wants us to have an appreciation for not just the the words and not just the sequence and structure, but to recognize the the that this is art. This is a literature at its highest form. And by observing literary form, it helps us to to see some of those finer details in in the biblical text. Just like any art form, a painting, for example, conveys more than just a picture. An artist is, in some cases, making a statement, or he might be conveying feelings through that painting. So it's just not strokes on a canvas, or it's not just arrangement of colors, but it it expresses, that's what makes it art. It communicates more than simply the the, uh, the, the visual picture that you have there. <clears throat> Similarly, paintings use different ways to communicate that different meanings, or mediums rather. Uh, you can use oils, or you can use watercolor, you can use pencil, you can use charcoal. And you can put all of those materials on canvas or on paper or even a wall. So there are different ways of expressing that art. So also in literature, there's different literary form to communicate ideas in different ways. And that's what the whole area of literary form deals with. And I've shown this slide before. But in this context, you want to make sure that you are observing literary form because each literary form has its own characteristics and you want to keep in mind those characteristics. Keep reminding yourself what are the unique features and going back to purpose, you might even ask yourself the question, why did the author select this literary form? when he could have uh, conveyed this idea in a different literary form. So just a reminder here of what we already talked about earlier. I talked about narrative literature, and I put it first because 
It is very prominent. In fact, it's the most prominent literary form in all of the Bible. About 40% of all of the Bible is written in narrative. And when we speak of scripture, we add the word historical narrative. Uh, There are different kinds of narrative as well. There are novels that are not necessarily true. They might give situations that might occur, but they're not necessarily true. But the Bible is not of that nature. It is of the nature of historical narrative. So narrative basically is a story communicating events or history in story form. That's narrative. The Bible also does not just present historical facts, but historical narrative also has a theological intent or a theological aspect to it as well. This is history from God's perspective. The events are selective, and they're selected in order that we might have an idea of how God deals with mankind in time, how he's dealt with mankind in the past. And one of the things that should give us is assurance that he can handle things in our time frame as well. So it's selective and it's interpretive. It's not intended to be exhaustive. So a lot of detail, sometimes we might desire, particularly in the early chapters of Genesis. But uh, the author had a particular design or purpose in mind. So it is selective, but it is also interpretive. Narrative appeals to the imagination. So one of the things you want to do, and we'll talk more about it, but you want to put yourself into the story be a part of the narrative. We also have a lot of poetry in the Bible. So we have a poetic literary form. Now, Hebrew poetry, we'll talk about it. I'll give you some of the major characteristics. But Hebrew poetry is different, for example, than English or European poetry or even Greek Hebrew poetry, the main element of it, and I'll give you a lot of detail on this, uh, has parallelism. Now, like most poetry, it also has a lot of figurative or metaphorical language, but the main element of poetry is parallelism. And I'll explain that in more detail. Poetry appeals somewhat to the emotions. So it's different from epistolary literature, and you need to keep in mind those characteristics when you're interpreting poetic language. Now, I mentioned Hebrew poetry, but keep in mind, when we speak of poetry in the New Testament, it predominantly is Hebrew poetry because the poetry of the New Testament is oftentimes in the form of quotations of Old Testament poetry. And even that that is not a quotation oftentimes falls into the category of Hebrew poetry where parallelism is the prominent feature. So make observations concerning whether it's narrative, whether it's poetry, 
or in a broad sense discourse, of which epistolary literature is only one kind of discourse. Discourse can be a sermon, so the Sermon on the Mount would be considered discourse. The Olivet Discourse, obviously, is a discourse. In other words, the prophetic sermon that Jesus gave about three days before the crucifixion, that's called the Olivet Discourse. Uh, It is more didactic. It is more sometimes framed in a more logical, sequential, idea-driven form. So discourse is a literary form that Scripture uses as well. Sometimes we have the tendency, those that do exposition, to almost treat every passage as if it's discursive, and we exegete every passage in the same way. Uh, you need to be careful with that approach. So, logical discourse, you might use that adjective as well. Material presented in idea form in a more logical, sequential way. There's, fourthly, prophetic material, which is unique to Scripture in terms of some characteristics Uh, The major characteristics are unique to Scripture in that authentic or uh, real prophetic material has its source only in God, because only God can foretell the future. But prophetic material has its unique characteristics as well, and we'll look at it when we talk about special hermeneutics. Parables is not as important as narrative or poetry or discourse or even prophetic. But we do have what we might describe as parabolic material or parables. There are parables in the Old Testament. One of the main ways that Jesus communicated was he utilized parables very commonly. So there's lots of parables in the life of Christ and In fact, there's uh, an entire discourse almost that is made up of parables in Matthew chapter 13 and the parallel passages. And there are other literary forms. We'll touch on some of them when we talk about special hermeneutics at the end of the, the the class, the last third of of, uh, our hermeneutics course. So just kind of putting some of these together, I think God desires to not only communicate, he's not only communicating ideas, but he's attempting to affect our will. And in affecting our will, he will use different means or different mediums, different literary form to change oftentimes or affect or motivate our will. Discourse is primarily to affect the will through the the mind or the intellect. Most of those passages are to convince. In other words, the purpose oftentimes is to convince us. So you have logic, you have organization, you have sequence of material. It appeals to the intellect, to the mind. Poet or narrative 
appeals to our experience and our imagination, but it also is to affect our will. In narrative, you have examples. Uh, you have situations that all of us face. And in facing these situations, we have people that have already gone before us that have experienced several, similar, things, similar things as what we will experience. So we can learn from their experience. That's why I say when you study narrative, you should put yourself into the story and try to think in terms of what did the characters experience? What were they feeling? What did they observe? What did they see? How were they affected? How did this event, event change their life? Or how did it affect them, positively or negatively? And you have good examples of ways of responding rightly. And you have also other examples of uh, where some characters responded badly. So you want to avoid responding in those negative ways. But it appeals to our experience. Poetry still tries to affect our will, but it utilizes the emotions. So this is an important area, apparently, that God desires to affect us and ultimately our wills through our intellect, our experience, and our emotions. In fact, those are three major areas that each of these three literary forms appeal to in uh, trying to impact our lives and our wills. So we have another category. Now this one, I've got it last because it's not as important. It's not as important as observing terms, not as important as important as looking at and observing structure, and not even as important as purpose or literary form, but what is the atmosphere of a passage? And we bring this up because it'll sometimes affect the way you take a passage, the, the way, and also the way the, the passage can affect you as well. So it uh, also is related somewhat to application. But what is the atmosphere of a passage? Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it because it's, like I said, it's not as crucial as all of the others we've looked at. And some of the main categories or main kinds or types of atmosphere in a passage uh, I illustrate them with these photographs, but the first one, Thanksgiving. In Paul's epistles, you have sometimes entire sections where he offers a, a long list of things that we can be thankful for, or it's just a sense of thankfulness for the grace that we have received from our gracious Father. So the atmosphere in those oftentimes is that of thanksgiving. We won't look these up, but if you want an example, in fact, you can find an example. In fact, some of you have selected passages in the book of Ephesians that fall into some of these. But another example, 1 Thessalonians 1, the verses from 2 to 10, almost the whole chapter, you have this atmosphere of thanksgiving. 
Colossians 1 also, verses 3 through 13, a large section of an atmosphere or a sense of thanksgiving. Some passages are humbling or the sense of humility is present in the passage. Uh, The the, uh, very obvious example, Psalm 51 especially verses 3 through 12. And if you know the historical context, remember this psalm goes along with Psalm 32, where you take these two together because they, the occasion of both of these are with that sin of David with Bathsheba and the killing of her husband. And Psalm 51 When Nathan exposed David's sin, this is the psalm that David writes right after that, and he's crushed. Uh, So the atmosphere of humility and uh, even a sense of mourning, you might even say, but more humility. uh, Humbly responding to the exhortation of Nathan. The counterpart is joy, and that's Psalm 32 where after he confesses and after he deals with his sin, then there's a sense of of joy as a result of forgiveness. David feels joy for forgiveness. And it's the same occasion, except it's the next stage of the experience there. David writes the psalm, and the atmosphere is very joyous. And there's lots of passages in scripture where you feel the writer has that sense of joy. There's others. Despair. Prime example there is the entire book of Lamentations, or most of it. In fact, there are some joyous portions in it, but particularly the first chapter, the first three voice, uh, verses there. Despair over the destruction of the nation of Israel, destruction of Jerusalem. Especially dreadful is chapter 3, verses 16 through 21. Most of chapter 5 were just an atmosphere of despair. Anger is another emotion that you might find in a passage. Uh, the passage I like to use in that case is 1 Corinthians 5, the first eight verses. Do you remember in that passage, Paul is reprimanding the Corinthians? The reprimand is because they're not dealing with a situation of incest. Talks about a man probably in an incestuous relationship, possibly with his mother. You'll have to Look at the details there. And certainly he is angry at that situation, but he is also expressing anger in that passage for the Corinthians because they're not dealing with the situation in a way that they they should. Jesus himself expressed anger. So there's a righteous anger, and 1 Corinthians 5 would be an illustration from Paul, but Matthew 23, Jesus himself, the woes that he pronounces on uh, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, strong language, an atmosphere of anger. 
So you might find that in some passages as well. Some passages you have a sense of awe. Uh, Revelation chapter 1, Psalm 19, as the psalmist observes the heavens, the heavens display the glory of God. You can imagine him just looking at all of the stars and being impressed and at awe at God's creation. So you have that sense of awesomeness of God. And there's a lot of passages in the book of Revelation where you have visions of of heaven itself and you have a sense of awe. Another kind of atmosphere, urgency. A sense of urgency. A good example of that would be Galatians 1. You have some anger there as well. You don't have what is characteristic of Paul. You don't have a a section of thanksgiving or praise that he offers to the Galatians. But he just starts right into his reprimand. And there's a sense of urgency. In other words, you, you need to deal with this issue of legalism, basically, and a distortion of the gospel, and he has a sense of urgency in not only the way he presents the material, but in the uh, instruction that he that he gives in terms of what they need to do. So he's concerned at their quick deserting of the gospel, and it's mixed with anger as well. At the end of Second Timothy, the chapter four, particularly verses one through eighteen, this is this is the end of Paul's life, and he's preparing Timothy to take over basically his ministry because he he knows and he senses that he's shortly going to be executed, and historically it's believed that within weeks, if not months, of the writing of Second Timothy. Paul was executed and martyred, obviously. So you, you have a sense of urgency there in that passage. He wants to make sure that Timothy is prepared to be able to take, take over his ministry, knowing that he's not going to be there much longer. So a sense of urgency in that passage. Sense of tenderness. We talked about First John being assuring, but also my little children uses that phrase. Young men, a sense of, you know, a, a fatherly desire for the spiritual growth of his disciples. Lots of tenderness. Second Corinthians chapter one, after Paul reprimands them in First Corinthians in chapter one of Second Corinthians, Now, he goes into more tenderness, treating them with tenderness. Sarcasm. The main illustration that I use here is 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And let me read a little bit of it to you so you can kind of get the sense of sarcasm there. Because if you miss the sarcasm... It's possible that you might misinterpret the passage. So, in this case, here's an example of a passage that could be misinterpreted by not observing 
properly what Paul is doing in terms of the use of sarcasm. So in 1 Corinthians 4, beginning in verse 6, I won't read the whole passage, but let me read enough of it so that you kind of get the feel of it. And you remember in, in 1 Corinthians, most of it, he's correcting divisions, uh, particular issues. I mentioned chapter 5, this issue of incest. And in chapter chapter 4, verse 6, Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos. And remember, in this part, he's dealing with their divisions. Uh, for your sakes, that in us you might learn not to exceed what is written in order that no one of you might become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. For who regards you as superior? In other words, they, they've got, you know, I'm, I'm of Paul. I'm of that. Therefore, I am of higher spirituality than you. You're just of Apollos, etc. It says, who regards you as superior? And what do you have that you did not receive? This is important. Verse 7. But if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? And then verse 8, I think here's where the sarcasm begins. And then pick up the sarcasm. You are already filled. You have already become rich. You've become kings without us. I would indeed that you would become kings so that we also might reign with you. See how he's kind of just sarcastically saying, you guys have arrived. And then he goes on, for I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to death. But because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak. You're strong. You're distinguished. But we are without honor. And he goes on and on and on. You pick up the sarcasm there? It, I think it's pretty thick. So he's not saying that they've achieved all these things in verse 8. In other words, they're not filled. They're not complete. That's sarcasm. Uh, they're not rich in a spiritual sense. Uh, in fact, the very opposite. I think he's reprimanding them there. Uh, but he's using sarcasm there to to kind of communicate kind of the opposite of what he is saying. So that's atmosphere. Um, you see how that might come into play in a passage? And like I said, this is not as crucial, not as important as all of the others, but in some cases it may come into play in even understanding what's going on within a passage. And hopefully that First Corinthians passage illustrates that you can misinterpret the passage by missing the sarcasm. So some passages have Thanksgiving as a atmosphere or a sense or an emotion that permeates. Humility, joy, despair, anger, awe, urgency, tenderness. And we just looked at sarcasm. You might also see, I don't have it on the slide there, but uh, a calm, a deliberate atmosphere 
almost a courtroom atmosphere, uh, kind of a respectful, you might say. The book of Romans would be an example of that as well, where you don't have emotion. You don't have this joy or this despair or anger. It's just pretty much calm. Or maybe you might say there's an absence of emotion in some of those passages. The atmosphere is one of calmness. Any questions over any of the things we looked at? In terms of observation, well, no questions. Okay, so we've looked at observation. What do I see? We want to take notice, not just seeing words on a page, but perceiving, attempting to be saturated with the details of the text so that now we can begin to interpret. So that completes our look at observation. And in the next phase of our exegetical process, we want to begin to look at interpretation. In other words, now we want to look at what does it mean All we've done to this point and the assignments that you've worked on have been designed to to help you to simply observe. In other words, what is in the text? What is there? Not trying to come up with what does it mean yet. That's the interpretation phase. So this is a good time to take a break and... In our second part here of this seventh session, we'll give you an introduction to interpretation. Any questions or everybody following here? Yep, following, no questions. Okay, Steve, haven't heard from you today. Well, it seems pretty straightforward, although I know that sometimes it's a a matter of making a decision because often some of these elements are combined. Yeah, yeah. Andrea, everything clear to you? Uh, Yes, no questions. Great. All right, well, let's take a break and we'll come back uh, about six, seven minutes or so. Before we get into the stage or the phase of interpretation, let's go over the uh, instructions for the exegetical paper. It's in your packet with the assignments. I think it's the fourth sheet there. And basically, I'm just going to read what I've got here. The paper is to be no more than 10 pages long. Now, that excludes an appendix. And down at the bottom, you'll see there's an appendix and what's included in it. The emphasis is on quality, not quantity. So if you can say things briefly, that's better. Don't need to elaborate. Also, I'm not concerned about form. In fact, what I'd like for you to do is come up with a form that is most useful to you 
down the road as you study a passage. Not that every passage you study, you're going to write a paper, but you'll want to come up with some way of organizing your notes. And this paper is one way. You, you might come up with something that's more suited to your needs. So it's not to be long, it's to be more quality. Obviously, nowadays, this is not an issue. At one time, people didn't have computers, so I need to change that anyway. But type it out. The grade will not be based on your conclusions. So you might come to a wrong conclusion. And by the way, in the assignments, I didn't take off if you didn't have a probably a correct observation there. I was more looking at whether or not you were making observations. Similarly, on this paper, Conclusion, not based on conclusions. I may disagree with your conclusions, but more on how did you get to that conclusion? And I want you to kind of explain uh, how you came to the conclusions you came to. That's part of what the paper's about. No commentaries. No commentaries for this project at all. This is all your own observations, your own attempts at interpretation from the text itself. No commentaries. Now, in the process of exegesis, there is a place for commentaries, but because our tendency is to jump to the commentary first, and then we do whatever else we do interpreting the passage, um, this exercise will limit you in no use of the commentaries. We'll talk some more about that as we work through a process here. The paper should include the following, and if you want to organize it in this way, that's fine. If you have a preferred way, you can organize it better. But you should have a portion of the paper that discusses the setting of the book. You're developing context here. This is Some of this you did when you did your book study, so... At this point, you want to refine that book study that you did and do at least these three things. State the main idea of the book of Ephesians in one sentence or phrase. Now, you already did that, but now that you've gotten more into the book, you might read it again and refine that main idea for this paper. Similarly, a brief outline of the book of Ephesians is the same level of outline at the division and subdivision level. And I also gave you some feedback on what you already did in that assignment on a book study. So you might want to clean that up and put it in the paper. And you haven't done context yet. In fact, the next assignment is right of, is to, to deal with context. But for the paper, write a brief paragraph on the immediate context of your assigned passage. That's that passage that you noted on that assignment dealing with the book study. So whatever passage you selected, now this paper is going to deal with that passage. You're going to write a paper on that particular passage. That's your assigned passage. And you're going to write a commentary. In other words, a commentary basically explains the conclusions you came to. In other words, your interpretations. And you're going to give the reasons why you came to those conclusions. 
And it should include the following. A, state the main idea of your assigned passage in one sentence or phrase. Just like you came up with the main idea of the whole book, now you come up with the main idea of that particular passage that you're studying. And the commentary should include, number one, a detailed outline. Now, in this case, this is a detailed outline. A detailed outline of your assigned passage with a commentary interspersed between the outline. So you'll have an outline, and then you'll have maybe a paragraph uh, explaining some of the following here, or explaining what you're doing in that in that portion of the outline. And the commentary should include your conclusions, your interpretive conclusions. Along with your reasons for them. Why did you come to that conclusion? And your reasons, should you should be arguing from what the author puts in the text. In other words, reasons from the text. Commentary should raise the major issues and problems of the passage. In other words, if it's a grammatical problem, uh, you want to state it. At this stage, you may not be in a position to be able to solve all those problems. In fact, this is one of the places where commentaries can come in, but at least give it a try before you go to the commentary because the commentaries are not to be used. But every passage will raise different issues. It may be a theological issue. It may be a grammatical issue. It it can be any variety of, of issues in there. At this stage, you may not be able to solve these, I say, these issues, but you should at least raise them and maybe at least propose a possible solution. The commentary should discuss the details of the passage. In other words, how all of the parts fit together and how they support some of the main conclusions that you come to. Now, your conclusions will be reflected in that outline. Those will be conclusions in themselves. The outline itself are your interpretive conclusions concerning what the author is trying to communicate. And then you have the details as you work your way into the uh, the passage, the details of your outline. So use a format, and I'll give you more detail concerning how to outline later on, but I kind of lay it out here. Use a format for the outline and commentary as follows. So you'll have your main point, your main divisional point. Roman numeral number one, and you might explain that in a little commentary, little paragraph, two or three sentences. You have a subpoint of your main point there. That's the subdivision level. And you want to explain why you came up with that, a commentary, minor point, and you have a little a, little, little b, etc. And a commentary interspersed. That's what I mean with a commentary interspersed. And if you have a if you have a one, you need to have a two in outlining. If you have a little a, you have to have a little b in outlining. If you have parentheses one, you have to have a parentheses two and three and four, however many points there are, but at least two. And then you have a b, and then you have a second major point.
So you're dividing your paragraph into Roman numeral or main points, subpoints, etc. C, write out at least one good application of your passage. And we haven't talked about it, but I'll show you how to do a word study. This is the appendix now. You'll, you'll uh, include one word study from your passage. We'll talk about that. Not this week, but next week we'll talk about doing a word study. And we'll also include the other things there, mechanical layout or diagramming. You may not know what that is. We'll talk some more about that. A uh, few major observations on your passage. And this is in the appendix. Include any other studies you made that may be significant. And that's optional. The only outside book that you might utilize, don't use commentaries, but uh, you will need a concordance to do your word study. And um, if you want to use a Bible dictionary, that would be okay, but make sure you note it. But no commentaries. Does that make sense? What about features and... Say that again? Features in Lagos where you can do... Well, last hour we were looking at observation. And we completed that portion. And let me remind you again, the reason we're separating them out is so that you can understand the difference between the two, which is very important to distinguish observation from interpretation. When you actually get into a passage, you'll make observations, and then uh, you might even attempt to find the meaning and go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, until, until you are satisfied that you've worked your way through the passage and understand all of the details and you have arrived at the author's intended meaning. But we separated it out so that you could see the difference. So now we're going to take what we've observed, if you're in a given passage, and now we want to come up with answers to the question, what does it mean? What is the meaning that is being conveyed? We've observed what is in the text, what is there, that's the raw materials, you might say, to now begin to put the passage together in terms of what it means. So interpretation is seeking the author's willed meaning, intended meaning. So everything that we are doing is geared towards attempting to find what the author intended to communicate. So that's kind of the bottom line in interpretation. And just again, a reminder why this is so important and why we, in our study, we devote uh, so much time and detail. It's because, first of all, uh, we're dealing with what God has communicated. We're dealing with a text that we believe is inspired 
and also inerrant. It has all of the authority of God himself, and we want to be careful to know what God has said and understand so that now we can be in a position to have it affect us and also that it might affect those that we want to communicate that word to. So very, very important that we be careful and diligent and apply all of the principles that we'll be developing here. Secondly, the issues that we deal with in Scripture are eternal issues. And I'm not just only talking about issues of salvation, but basically the whole Christian life, I believe, is God preparing us to be with him in not only eternity, but a lot of things we do now has an impact and effect on our place and our position in the millennial kingdom. So our teaching and our ministry is designed to prepare people for the millennial kingdom, at least part of it. It's designed to deal with issues here and now, but ultimately these issues have eternal consequences. So that should uh, encourage us, us to be diligent and careful in our exegetical process. Thirdly, not as important, but important all the same in the culture that we live in, where there's so much false doctrine, we want to be careful not to be careless with the word and be accused of false doctrine or even error. We want to be as accurate and careful in understanding what God has communicated as we possibly can. So we will take pains and take the time that is required in order to understand what God has communicated. I introduced our exegetical process, explaining that we utilize the scientific method, and I tried to emphasize the scientific method came from men that had exegetical skills. Historically, that's where the scientific method came from. So there's a direct relationship between science and exegesis. The scientific method, per se, deals with observing phenomenon, observing things in the natural realm or in the creation, in the sciences. And that is derived from observation of the biblical text. So those scientists, those early scientists that developed the scientific method, they made observations in the biblical text. They took those skills, made observation in the natural realm to see what God was revealing because they looked at passages like Romans 1, Psalm 19, 1 through 3, that tell us that uh, you can observe the natural realm and see something of who God is. So the natural realm teaches us something, but we need to observe it in order to see what it teaches. So also we observe the biblical text. We've completed looking at this phase that we call observation. And now we are going to come to some conclusions or generalizations Generalization is the second phase of the scientific method. In science, we form a hypothesis 
based on those observations, we come up with statements to explain the relationships of the observations that we made, depending on the particular area of science that we're studying. Those observations will lead us to certain conclusions, at least preliminary. We call that a hypothesis. We will go further, but in exegesis, we will come up with, I just put interpretation there, but it, you need to think in terms of, at the beginning, initial interpretation or preliminary interpretation. We will refine that as we make more observations and, in fact, as we probe the passage in more detail, we will refine our conclusions until we're satisfied that we have come to what the author intended to communicate. Part of the interpretive process includes verification. In science, you come up with a test that verifies the hypotheses and or falsifies that hypothesis, and perhaps refines it as a result of your testing. And in exegesis, you want to do something analogous. You want to substantiate the interpretations that you've come to. And I don't know if you noticed, but when we were, when I was explaining the exegetical paper, I asked you to come up with reasons why you came to those conclusions. That is part of your substantiation. To be able to articulate, well, I came to this conclusion because of these three reasons, or four, or whatever the case may be. And also, we'll look at the, the stage of consulting commentaries. In other words, what have others done? How have others viewed the same passage, and what are the conclusions they've come to? And if they're similar to ours, then that gives us confidence that maybe we have come up with the right conclusion. But if we have enough reasons, we might disagree with the commentator. But now we're in a position to be able to do that. But at least we are seeing what others have come up with. And commentators will differ. You'll find one commentator that might agree with you and another one that disagrees. And, and now you're in a position to be able to decide, well... The reason I agree with this one is because he gives the same substantiation that I've come up with. Uh, we'll talk about that when we get to commentaries. So the stage of verification to gain confidence that the interpretation we come from, we have come to is uh, not so unique that it's, it goes against what scripture teaches, but is in, uh, general agreement with sound exegesis of others as well. And then, we'll, after we get done with the interpretive phase, we will utilize the passage that's beyond the scientific method, but in science and in the culture, this is what engineers do. They take the principles that have been tested the principles of science that have been validated, and we utilize them to come up with designs, to come up with highways, structures, subdivisions, cities, etc., machines, computers, programs, etc. That's engineering. Uh, the analogous area in exegesis is now we're going to 
take those truths and apply them. Now that we have confidence that we have come to what the author has communicated, now we want to apply them personally. We want to apply them in the church. We want to apply them in our families. We want to apply them to those that we are discipling. So that's application, a very important phase. And part of the utilization, which this course will not deal with in the sciences after an engineer comes up with a design, that design can be built. It's construction phase. The analogy to exegesis is now that you've come up with applications and you understand a passage, now you can teach it and apply it in a in a context in, in the world in which we live in, whether it be in the church or in the world in general or in discipleship or counseling or whatever. So we're at the second phase, generalization. Bottom line, as I've already stated, to find out the meaning of a statement for the author and for the first hearers, we've talked about this, it's just more of a reminder, the first hearers or readers, and thereupon, that last phase that the course will not deal with, thereupon to transmit that meaning to modern readers. So that's kind of the composite of all that we're doing here. That's out of Mickelson's hermeneutics text. I'm going to give you a statement that I am the author of, and if you, some of you know a little bit about me, not too many of you, Barb knows a little bit about me, and I don't know if the rest of you do, but I'll give you the statement, but the bottom line, there's a summary of the last line. The author's willed or intended meaning. We've been talking about that throughout. Uh, here's the statement. Nothing, I've, I've probably made this statement, actually. Nothing would please me more than to see the Lobos, that's the local University of New Mexico mascot, Nothing would please me more than to see the Lobos win a Mountain West Conference, that's our conference, championship. Now, I could make that statement in a variety of contexts, and if people know me, they would know that when I say nothing would please me more, they would uh, put it within a particular context, in other words, they would not read into that statement that I mean nothing absolutely. In other words, above somebody coming to know Christ, above someone being faithful to what God has called them to do, above being obedient to what God has revealed in his word. Well, no, we're, we're talking about a particular context and knowing me, I'm a Lobo fan, and it would bring me great joy, and I could make this statement knowing that the people that I'd be making it to would not read into the nothing idea there, this absolute sense. But in the context of sports, and particularly whatever the sport is of the occasion, football being now, Nothing would please me more than to see the Lobos win a Mountain West Conference football championship. And I could say this year, and but I could say it at any point. 
Point being, I'm the author, I have an intent, and all I'm communicating is this would be very pleasing to me. It doesn't have anything to do with spiritual issues or even non-spiritual issues, but it is in some ways within the context of athletics. So that's what we're looking for. What did the author intend? And we read that from what he has put in the text and the details that he provides for us. We can come to some confidence that we've arrived at what the author intended. So, um, in an example like this one in Matthew 12, 43 through 44, Jesus is almost saying the opposite of what the words are saying, or the, the exact meaning of these words. He's actually intending to communicate the op- almost the opposite. In fact, he uses these words to call attention to what he's saying. But Jesus says, calling his disciples to him, he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow, remember this is the story of the widow that put in all she had into the uh, the box or the place of contribution. This poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. And he gives an interpretation in verse 44. So, when he says more than all the contributors, within the context and within the details, if you take those words outside of their context, you might come to the conclusion that Jesus is saying that she put in a larger sum dollar some amount than all of the contributors but if you keep it within the context and take into account verse 44 he gives an explanation for they all put in out of their surplus in other words they had far more money that they contributed some of them may have been rich some of them maybe not so rich but out of the surplus in other words they had uh large amounts, and they just gave a little bit of the excess, even though the exact amount was more than what Jesus said in verse 43, dollar amount, and yet from Jesus' perspective, he's saying the widow put in more than all the contributors. For they put, for they all put in out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she owned all she had to live on. So the text kind of clarifies for us. In fact, I think I missed this first slide, didn't I? I clicked it twice. Uh, I should have read verse 41 and 42. And he sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury and many rich people were putting in large sums. So the sum total is larger poor widow came in and put in two small copper coins, which amounted to a cent. And then now he makes the statement that she put in more than all the contributors. So in this case, even though it was less, 
what Jesus is communicating is that it was in reality more, and he's talking about proportions here. And it took, it was more sacrificial, I think that's the point that he's making, than all of the con- contributors because they gave simply out of their surplus. So, there's enough in the context that we can understand what Jesus is saying here, even though the exact words, if you just take verse 43 without the context, without everything around it, uh, you would come perhaps to the wrong conclusion because the very words say the opposite. She didn't put in dollar amount more, but in reality she put in more in terms of sacrifice and in terms of what it took out of her, took all that she had. So, just one brief illustration of reaching the author's intended or willed meaning. What did Jesus intend when he said more than all the, con- the all, all the contributors? So, let me illustrate that using circles here. We have a passage that we're looking at, and the circle represents all of the possible meanings. We may be able to take a passage in a variety of ways. Maybe in a surface reading, we might come to one conclusion, and that might be a possibility of what is meant by this passage. But as we continue to make observations, and as we begin to refine our conclusions, we begin to narrow the circle to the green area. And now we've narrowed the meaning to only within that circle, within the circle, we've eliminated maybe one possibility, the pink area outside of the green, narrower circle. And as we continue to work and work and observe and go back and forth from observation to interpretation, then we uh, narrow the circle such that now we have a smaller circle of possibilities because we've eliminated some of the lighter greenish or what is it, light blue maybe. And then eventually, by the time we are done with the process, we arrive at the intended meaning of the author. So we've eliminated all of the other possibilities and we have a higher degree of confidence that now we've arrived at what the author intended. So that kind of illustrates the process that we go through. It's an iterative process of going to the text, making observations, coming to conclusions back and forth until we are satisfied by the end of the process that we've arrived at what the author intended. Uh, I hope that illustrates what we're getting at here in this whole process. Now, how do we get there? In other words, how do we get to that very narrow circle where we've captured the the, the essence of what the in, the author intended? Part of the process is we we can use interpretive questions. Uh, we've we've explored in some detail the uh, observations. Uh, we will we will come as a result of dealing with these observations that we've made 
but we also want to utilize questions. In fact, as we work through the text, we will raise several questions. In fact, a good observational or a good observation may be in the form of a question that would be not only a valid but a very good observation because that is the step to now you want to answer that question that's the interpretation. So let me just kind of briefly outline some of the kinds of questions that we can ask the text. And these are somewhat uh, general types of questions. There are what are called definitive questions. A definitive question asks, what is the meaning? What is the meaning of this word? What is the meaning of this sentence? What is the meaning of this paragraph? In other words, what is the main idea of that paragraph? All the way to the level of the book. What is the meaning of the whole book? What is the main idea of the whole book? What is, that's, that deals with the meaning. That's a definitive question. Defining what the author is trying to communicate. Secondly, there are what are called rational questions. These are the why questions. Why is this said? Now, rational questions lead to purpose. Remember, we talked about purpose. You're observing purpose, but you can also ask a question that leads you to purpose. Why is this word included? Why does he use Elohim instead of Yahweh? Or in Genesis 2, he uses Yahweh Elohim. Why does he use both names and, and um, includes Yahweh with Elohim instead of just Elohim like he did in Genesis chapter 1? That's the why. Or why does he include Genesis 1? And then in Genesis 2, he seems to tell a creative story that is somewhat different. Why does he do that? Why, why do we have two creation stories? Or uh, is it, in fact, a creation story or different creation story? But you're asking the question, why? Why do we have these two, chapter 1 and then chapter 2 that follows in the book of Genesis? So that's the rational question. These are broad category questions. Thirdly, you have implicational questions. Now, all of this, this is in the in interpretive phase. Implicational questions include uh, what is implied or what are the implications of that statement. In other words, I, I understand the meaning of it, but what are the implications of it? In other words... Uh, this goes beyond just the meaning. Uh, what is the author getting at here? What is he trying to, to to get to in terms of me as a reader? What are the implications? So those are your broad categories. These The implicational questions are going to lead to application. So when you get to the application stage you're oftentimes mainly asking implicational questions. So some of the basic questions, and these pertain primarily to narrative material, but in some cases they apply elsewhere as well. But you have the seven basic questions that you can ask, the, the who, what, where, and when question. 
who is involved, who is the author, who are the main characters, what are they doing, or what is this that is being described, where does it take place, that's a geographical question, uh, the timing question, when, seven basic questions, there's four of them, two more, the how, how is this coming about, what is the sequence, the why, that's your rational question again. So who, what, where, when, how, why. And then the seventh one is so what. That's your implicational question. So you have seven basic questions you can ask. The first four, primarily in narrative material, but sometimes elsewhere. The how and why can be involved in just about any kind of literature besides narrative, the so what, uh, the broadest of all of them. The who, what, where, and when can be answered oftentimes by observation. In other words, just simply looking at what the text tells us about the who, who are the main characters, the where and the when. But the how and the why oftentimes requires interpretation. In other words, it takes a little bit more probing and more of a coming up with a, a reason or an answer. In other words, more of an explanation. So that more interpretation. The so what is more related to the applicational phase. So one way of getting at meaning is as you're observing, you're also asking yourself certain questions. Just to illustrate it, in uh, Psalm 23, I'll use it because it's very familiar to probably all of you. In Psalm 23, verse 1, it says, The Lord is my shepherd. So let's take a look at that first part of verse 1. And we could make some observations. An observation we might make is the name Lord is used. And it appears like it's used for deity, a, the, the deity or God, Lord. And I would note that uh, this word is used, so that's an observation. But an interpretive question that I might ask now is, what is the meaning of the word Lord? What does Lord mean? That would be your definitive question. What is the meaning of the word? But you might also ask, why is it used instead of another name, like maybe Elohim or any one of the other names of God? Why is this one used? So that's more of the uh, rational question, the, the why question. Uh, so that you make the observation and now you ask the questions and in the interpretive phase, now you are going to try to find an answer. Why does he use the word Lord instead of another divine name? And there might be some things in the text that lead you to uh, understand why that is used. And one of the conclusions you probably come to is the word Lord is more the personal name of God. And you find Lord more in context when it's dealing with these relationships that people have with God 
And this is a highly relational psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. In other words, I have this shepherd-sheep relationship. So Elohim would probably not be a, the best choice here, so he uses the word that is more relational. But you've asked the question, why did he use it? And now you can start thinking about not only the meaning of the word, but why is it used in this context. Another observation you might make, <clears throat> the Lord is my shepherd. You might make the observation that we have the personal pronoun there, my, and uh, you might uh, begin to ask the question, what is involved in this relationship? There seemed to be an, a relationship involved here that it speaks of my. So you might probe that. That's a definitive question. What is involved in being in this relationship? Uh, what is the emphasis? Why is the this an emphasis on a personal possession or personal relationship? That's a rational question. And as you observe, you want to make some observations on the word shepherd itself. And a definitive question is, uh, let me come up with a list of characteristics of a shepherd. What are the characteristics? What are the attitudes? What is the function of a shepherd? That's a definitive question. Rational question, why is the Lord described as a shepherd? Why does he use this imagery? And if you read through the Psalms, you, you find out that the whole Psalm deals with this this imagery of the shepherd and the sheep in a pasture, etc. And it probably conveys certain things. So you want to ask the why, and that might lead you to some interpretive answers as well. And you want to ask the question, an implicational question might be, what are the fuller implications of the use of this description of the Lord as a shepherd? And as you probe that, now you can probably come up with some valid applications in terms of the Lord as my personal shepherd. So all I'm illustrating there is notice how these questions lead to the seeking of particular answers and that's what we are doing in this interpretive phase, is trying to come up with answers and questions will help us to get to those answers. Another thing that we want to consider in coming to answers is the Bible encourages Bible meditation. And in fact, I think that what... The passages indicate to us, if you study, in fact, if you do a word study on the Hebrew word for meditation, of which I've looked all of them up and did a study, I've come to the conclusion is what the biblical authors are encouraging is basically exegesis. Biblical exegesis. So let's look at this concept. And we talk about biblical meditation that has nothing to do with some of the common Ideas in our culture concerning meditation. It's, it has nothing to do with, for example, New Age meditation. Biblical meditation is basically Bible thought and study and pondering 
and observation and interpretation. In fact, uh, I can show you passages that kind of bring out these different aspects. We don't have time to do it. But let's look at this concept of biblical meditation because this is, this is the process that we are involved in. The exegetical process is a meditative process. Uh, biblical meditation involves thought. We're going to put a lot of thought into our exegesis. So, when the Bible speaks of meditating, it's concentrating on our Lord and His Word to better obey Him. That's a good biblical definition of meditation. So, it's a concentrating on a biblical text. And we don't visibly or even materially have contact with the Lord. We we know about him and have relationship with him through his word. So we're concentrating on the Lord through his word. And it has the purpose of obeying him. That's application. So concentration involves observation and interpretation. And obedience involves application. And it's focused on God's word. So meditation is a function of the mind and also the heart. And that's what we want to do in the exegetical process. It's not purely an academic exercise, but involves certainly the intellect or the mind. And it uh, goes to the very heart because we're dealing with issues that God has laid out for us in his word. So it's a function of the mind and heart. Now, we can look at just Joshua 1.8, because I think we have the major elements of this whole process. And you might even notice, even from this passage itself, we have a description of the exegetical process. This is in uh, the early part of the book of Joshua. Instructions are given to Joshua. He's the new leader of Israel. And notice what's going to be very key to him is essentially not only meditation, but what is instructed here is Bible exegesis. And let's look at the text here, because we can pull out from it some of these major elements. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. Now, the word of God was often verbalized or, or spoken in uh, Old Testament cultures. So he's talking about expressing God's ideas, God's thoughts. And he's saying, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. In other words, it should be ever ready there to be able to be communicated. But you shall meditate on it. In other words, concentrate. Apply your thoughts, your mind. Think about it. Making observations. Coming to some conclusions. Meditating. But it also involves a heart attitude. In other words, what is God saying? And how is he trying to affect me by this communication? So, meditation involves this concentration. 
And I'm going to use C's here. You could select other words, but sometimes I like to alliterate, especially if it falls into the alliterating pattern very easily. And this one, this one does. So we start the meditating process by concentrating. And that's what you do in your exegetical process. You're concentrating on the biblical text, seeing what is exactly there, coming to preliminary understanding, trying to understand what the author is communicating. And you do that through your intellect, through your mind. You're concentrating. You're thinking about it. The text goes on, but you shall meditate on it day and night. That tells us that uh, you're not going to arrive at the meaning just by one day's observation or one sitting. It may take a, a time period. It may take a process. <clears throat> and oftentimes, when I'm studying and exegeting a passage, in general, it falls into a week's, week's pattern because I'm exegeting a passage in order to teach it the next Sunday. So I'll start that afternoon even sometimes to start looking at the passage, doing any preliminary interpretation on that passage that I might need, and I will work through that passage. I will do grammatical analysis. I'll do word studies. It won't all happen all at once. So it's a process, uh, and by the end of the week, I have a higher degree of confidence in the work that I've done because I've refined it and I've looked at the commentaries through the week as I work through that passage. So it's a, a night and day image that we have in this passage. Now, he's not saying you don't do anything else. It was Joshua had busy days, but the idea is it's it's a continuous thing. So the second phase is this continuing idea of continuing to think on to, and coming back to it the next day. You know, you get new insight and the things that were a little fuzzy the day before now are beginning to fall into place. And by the end of the week, you're able to put the passage together. So it takes a continuous study. It has a purpose so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Uh, you could use the word obey. In fact, that's the whole idea of not only that phrase, but that subordinate clause there, so that you may be careful to do. That's an infinitive, by the way. To do according to all that is written in it. A second subordinate clause there. The essence of it is we are to obey what we have meditated on on a continuous basis and have come to some conclusions on. Instead of the word obey, can you come up with a C word that, compl that uh, basically communicates the same idea? Comply. Ah, very good. There you go. There's a woman after my own heart. <laughs> Comply. So we can concentrate. Continue, comply is the obedience part. That's part of the meditation process. So application is part of the process of meditation. Then the last part, 
for then you will make your way prosperous because you're applying the word and now because of your ap- application you are able to deal with all of the things that life is going to present to you and you're going to be successful and then you then you will have success that doesn't mean you're not going to suffer but what it means is you're going to handle things in a right way and overall your your life is going to be prosperous and successful this is a key to all of the book of Joshua when the children of Israel did what is instructed of Joshua here. Now, this is given to him personally, but I think this was also to be implemented by the nation as well. When they obeyed, when they observed God's word, they were successful. They were victorious in battle. When they did not, like at Ai, they would lose a battle until God got them back on track. So the process involves not only the observation and interpretive process of concentrating and it's a continuous activity not just a short-term glance at the word it involves application or complying and it also includes the communication so the meditation process is basically the the process that we're dealing with in this past in this uh, course So when the Bible uses the word meditation, think of it in a broader sense, not just simply imagining it in your mind, but actually concentrating on the text itself, coming to some conclusions, interpreting it, and then actually applying it, and applying it even beyond ourselves. For example, Joshua would have done this with the nation that he was now the leader So he would be communicating as well. And we do this because we know the adequacy of God's word, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Through the true knowledge of him, we gain that true knowledge of him through the exegesis of his word. And then it expands the hymn who called us by his own glory and excellence. But this is what gives us the adequacy to live life, the adequacy of his word itself, the true knowledge of him. And we only gain that true knowledge as a result of understanding what he has revealed about himself. So that's biblical meditation. And I'd encourage you to to do a word study, and I think it'll be quite fruitful for you, and the word occurs primarily in the Old Testament, but there's an Old Testament word that you can look up. This passage on the adequacy of what God has provided for us is 2 Peter 1.3. So that's how we get there. Now, the next part of the course, and we'll just get into the beginning of this uh, today, but uh, let me go through some of these categories, these same categories that we made observations on, and uh, deal with them in terms of coming to conclusions. In other words, how do we come to conclusions in these particular areas? Now, I'm not going to start with terms. I'm going to start with the biblical text itself. In other words, interpretation, dealing with the text. And 
if you know Greek and if you know the Hebrew and you're dealing with the original languages, then you'll spend a considerable amount of time here. And I just want to give you kind of an exposure. We, we talked a little bit about it already. And I just want to review some of that and uh, expand it a little bit uh, so that you can be aware of the work of not only translators, but maybe your pastor that is doing uh, this on a consistent basis. He will deal with the biblical text. And sometimes in the teaching, he might even bring out. And you'll notice in... A study Bible, there might be a reference, there might be a footnote that says some manuscripts uh, include the following. And if it's not in the text that, it, that the translators give you, then they came to the conclusion that it probably is not original, it, part of the original document that the writer wrote. Or they might say something like... Uh, some manuscripts omit this word or this phrase or even this verse. And if they do that, then uh, the conclusion of the translators is that it is authentic. In other words, it should be part of the original. But this whole study in dealing with the biblical text, it's a very technical area. And all I'm going to do, don't, don't, you won't do any of this for the paper and you'll do very little. I just want you to be aware of what uh, scholars do in coming up with the biblical text. Now, translators do that for you in giving you the text that they present and they publish in New American Standard or whatever version that you're using. And you might also, when your pastor or Bible teacher is expounding a text, he might refer to this area, and this will give you an idea of what they're talking about, and it might have probably been fuzzy if they mentioned any of this at all. Some Bible teachers don't even mention some of this, they just do the work, and then just deal with the text as you find it. But, so that you know, let me give you a little brief further introduction to this whole area of what is called textual criticism. I mentioned already when we were talking about the principles and we talked about the linguistic principle. This is part of the linguistic principle, establishing the biblical text. Now, let me give you a definition or a description of it. We could uh, describe it using the following quotation. Textual criticism is the study of the copies of any written composition of which the original autograph is unknown for the purpose of determining the original text. Now, that's a very good statement from a book on textual criticism by J.H. Greenlee. Now, this statement itself I like it because it's broad in that it includes any written composition. And if you remember when I gave you that brief introduction, when we were talking about the linguistic principle, I mentioned that when we deal with ancient documents, for example, all of the Greek classics, we don't have any original 
documents of any of the classics of ancient time. And that's true not only of the classics, but even later writings. So textual criticism is a well-developed science that includes any document. So believers or Christians utilize the science of textual criticism and have to reconstruct the biblical text in the Old Testament, the Hebrew biblical text, and or Aramaic text, if that was the portion that was written in Aramaic, and or the New Testament, which is entirely written by Greek. So it's reconstructing the Greek text. And just like the classics do not have any of the originals, we do not have any originals of any book of the Bible or even any portion of the Bible. What we do have are copies of those originals. And most of those copies are copies of copies of copies. So there are copies down the way some distance from the original documents. So we don't have anything that Moses wrote in terms of the original documents. We don't have anything that Peter or Paul or Luke wrote. But we have copies, and in some cases copies of copies of copies of those writings. Textual criticism is the science that utilizes well-established principles in reconstructing that original text. And I gave you a feel for it because of the abundance of manuscripts that we have available in comparison to the number of manuscripts that are available for any other ancient document. We have the highest degree of confidence that the text that we utilize, the Greek or Hebrew text that we utilize, is a reflection of the original. We have a very high degree of confidence by magnitudes. In fact, we have so many copies that some scholars have stated that we most certainly, within those copies, have every word that was written that is inspired by God in the biblical text. And the decision is whether this particular copy is reflecting the original or whether a different copy is, that is the decision. It's not that we have lost anything when we come to the biblical text. That's not the case with any other literature. But because of the abundance of manuscripts and through the science of textual criticism, we have that degree of confidence. And we believe that the Holy Spirit has preserved the biblical text. So that's kind of a description of what the textual critic does. And obviously this is important because we're dealing with the Word of God, so there's much that we could talk about there. And the importance of textual criticism in this whole process of reconstructing the original text. 
And let me make some comments concerning the methodology. In other words, how do scholars do this? In other words, what is their process or their methodology? Well, they make comparisons of different manuscripts. And in the photograph there, that's a photograph of a fragment. Sometimes this is all that we have. But we have thousands of copies. This would be like one of them. And in this case, a limited amount of text. But we have other copies in some cases that would fill in the gaps, obviously, fill in all of the gaps and many copies that would fill in the gaps. But sometimes this is all that uh, we find. There are some that are very important, some of these manuscripts that are very important. And two of the most important are what are called Sinaiticus and Vaticanus. And I just put them side by side so you can compare the script. The script is used to identify the age oftentimes, the period in time when they were copied. But these are two of the most important because we have a complete Bible in Sinaiticus and Vaticanus. Very important. That's not always the case. Sometimes all we have are the fragments that I showed in that prior slide. So these are examples of what are called unseals, where the text is written in formal capital letters. Not lowercase, but capitals. And they're classified as unseals. There are some manuscripts, obviously, that don't use the capitals. Uh, they are described in a variety of other ways. An actual photograph of Vaticanus, at least one page that was open, and I took this in my first visit to Rome and the Vatican, and I actually took this photograph, and the reason it's kind of colored is, uh, it is because of the lighting in the room, they didn't allow you to use a flash, so this was kind of the best you could do. This was before digital cameras, this was several years ago. But they had it on display, and this is what it actually looks like. This is a full page of Vaticanus, and that red tint is just kind of a reflection of the lighting. It's not so much the color of the the document itself. The document itself is probably a more papyrus-like color, uh, more the color of the next slide that I'm going to show you, but I just wanted to show you. The last time that I was there, I asked about it because it wasn't on display and they said, oh, they've, they've locked it up um, because of uh, the possibility of deterioration. So you can't see it anymore. Got it all locked up. Um, so the text is probably more a color like this, but here are a couple of other very important manuscripts. There are what are called papyri. These are very early and they have certain characteristics as well. Here's uh, what's called a miniscule. It's more cursive rather than the capital letters. Two different text types here. Just examples of what scholars utilize when they compare. And like I said, there are thousands of these. Uh, obviously, there are different views and different opinions in terms of the weight that you give to 
to different sets of manuscripts. I won't go over that. But basically, there are two aspects to the process. The first part of it is what's called evaluating the external evidence. This is simply a process of comparing all of these available copies. And obviously, when all of them are the same, then you don't have an issue. The issue comes up is when you have one manuscript that maybe has a different phrase or word or even a whole sentence. One may omit the sentence. It's it's just that whole process of the scribe copying because you didn't have copy machines back then. So each copy had to be copied by hand up until the printing press, obviously. So you evaluate the external evidence. These are the copies themselves. And on the basis of their age, obviously, if everything else is equal, if you have an older manuscript, then it is of a higher priority than one that is not so old. Uh, You also give consideration to the number of copies, everything else being equal. In other words, if you have a word that is in a larger number, everything else being equal, then that's probably more likely the the original. So age and and number, but you also take into account uh, quality. So that enters in. And as you read through a document, you find out that some scribes were better than others. Some scribes didn't spell very well (laughs) or as well. And others were more meticulous. So uh, you can make an evaluation concerning the quality as well. And you take in all of those factors and come to a conclusion that this particular word is the in the original, even though there are some manuscripts that omit it. So that's the external evidence. And you also take into account what is called internal evidence. And internal evidence involves more issues relating to the author. For example, if you're studying uh, a letter of Paul, and Paul never uses this word, and yet it occurs in this uh, copy. And in that case... Maybe the internal evidence supports that it's it's not original, and and maybe the external evidence supports that it is. That now you have, have a decision between external and internal evidence, but you weigh all of those factors. Or maybe it's consistent, and now I have a high degree of confidence that this is the original. So that's what the textual critic does. And just to give you a picture of a Greek text, just so you. Some of you that are studying Greek, you if you look at your Greek text, the bottom portion of the text is what's called the apparatus. All of that is data relating to textual criticism. For example, we have a word here. In the Greek, it's ta, panta, and notice there's a superscript five. That's a footnote there. So you go down to the footnote. And it's in verse 15. This happens to be 1 Corinthians 2.15. And now it has a lot of data here. It's a little cryptic. 
But what you have after verse 15 there, you have D. This is what the editors of the Greek text, the level of confidence that they have. Now, A is almost certain. D is there's quite a bit of debate, I guess, and uh, possible or not so much certainty here. So, and then next you have the 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 variant. And then following it, you have a list of some of the manuscripts, major manuscripts that that uh, variant occurs. Ta panta. And then you have a parallel line. Well, let's see. I don't know if you can see it there. Then you have another listing, Panta without the article. And then it gives some of the uh, manuscripts that contain that variant. And in this case, there are about five different variants that you can find in the variety of manuscripts. And those that study the text take all of that data and evaluate whether or not the editors did a good job of coming to the conclusion of what they put in the Greek text. But that gets pretty technical. Um, For your purposes, I don't think you need that. And just to kind of give you an idea of where some of these errors come from, they're they're, there's a whole set of what we would describe as unintentional errors. In other words, the scribe just makes a mistake. And textual critics can identify some of these. They can see where the, uh, the scribe or the set of scribes just didn't see. You know, he's working from one copy, and he's copying a new one now. And his eye jumps from uh, the uh, old copy, and now he writes down on the new one, and he just failed to observe the accurate word there. And there are a couple of uh, descriptive words that they use. I won't get into the details there. One of those relates to, uh, there's an example of where a, a a verse ends in a particular word and the verse occurs again or that that particular word occurs in the next verse as well as the end and the the scribe saw the first one and then he when he goes back to the the one that he's copying from he sees that same word and he thinks he's copied that verse and in reality that verse has only that same word at the end of both those sentences so he skips that whole sentence or that whole verse uh, that's parablepsis, I believe. So those kinds of mistakes, or the majority of them are just simply spelling mistakes, where the scribe just misspells it, and the word doesn't make sense, but by changing one letter, it makes sense. And when you compare it to other copies, you see, oh, okay, the, the scribe just, in this copy, he just... Uh, misspelled it, just like what we would do in copying our notes or copying from one document to another document as we would do. So, uh, in Matthew, Jesus says that not one yud or seraph or jot and tittle shall pass away. I think God has preserved the biblical text, and I think I use this as an illustration of that Matthew 5 passage 
And what Jesus is referring to is the Hebrew letters and parts of letters. A yud is the smallest letter, and I just give you the comparison with the size here. It's like a comma, except it's raised up a little bit. And the relative size to the other letters of the Hebrew alphabet. So he's talking about the smallest letter. Sometimes the translators translate it that, that way. Or serif, or uh, what he's talking about are these projections at the end of a letter. And what Jesus is saying, not even a projection of a letter is going to pass away before it's all fulfilled. The seraph is just the difference between that little projection on the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet, that's a bait, and another letter later on in the middle of the alphabet, a kaf. That's the only difference between those two is that seraph. Similar with a dalet. So you have aleph, bait, gimel, dalet. The only difference between a dalet is that little projection on the dalet as compared with a resh towards the end of the Hebrew alphabet does not have that little projection. So, uh, it's easy to miss something, just like we miss things. Remember the example I gave you of looking, counting the number of ofs? Well, after a while you get tired as well if you're a scribe, and maybe at the end of the day you're not as careful or you're not as attentive or you're eyesight in the dimness of the oil lamps there, uh, you can have faulty eyesight. Now, it's also believed that in some cases you might have a room full of scribes. You want to mass produce copies. So somebody would read from an old copy that is wearing out and needs replacing. And you have a room full of scribes. And now one Scribe is reading, and he reads at a, at a pace that uh, the other scribes can can copy or write. And what they're doing is they're producing new new copies, and uh, they just don't hear correctly. Just like in English, when we say great, well, maybe the text says G-R-A-T-E, but the scribe hears great, and he writes down G-R-E-A-T. Same sound, two different words, two different meanings. And oftentimes, one word just won't fit the context, and you can immediately identify it. So a lot of these variants are very easily, in fact, about 98% of these variants are easily identified Sometimes just by faulty eyesight that can be easily detected or like in this case, great probably just didn't, the first great didn't fit the context. And obviously it was the other one. And there's errors of the mind. You know, the, the scribe is getting tired. He's substituting one word for another. Uh, lots of reasons. So these are just unintentional errors that crop up in the biblical text. Most of them, like I said, 95 to 98%, very, very insignificant, have no bearing on the uh, the meaning of the text. And, but those that are, are significant, you do some, some work. Those are just examples of what might happen. There's a whole category of intentional errors. In other words, an 
a scribe might say, well, this doesn't make sense. And maybe it's his inability to follow the original author and he sometimes intentionally is correcting. Or maybe he does find an error in the copy and he makes a proper correction. So there are times when that occurs as well. So that's the methodology. Some of the main principles, some kind of overriding principles in textual criticism, basic principles. Let me give you the three most important. And again, uh, you don't need to copy these or remember these. These are more just for your background to understand what goes on in the whole process. And I hope I'm giving you a better picture so that you understand the notes that are in your Bible and some of the comments that Bible teachers will make in their uh, exposition. One of the basic principles is you choose the reading, which explains, very important here, which explains the origin of the others. In other words, you can actually see what happens. In other words, you have a word. Let's use the example of the scribe not hearing very well. And he puts the word G-R-A-T-E. But now you have enough copies where G-R-E-A-T comes comes into the text, and you know that's the accurate one because the other one you can explain that the scribe just simply didn't hear accurately. So you choose a reading which explains the origin of the others. So that's what you're looking for. You're trying to be able to explain how the mistake was made, basically. Secondly, the this is... Interesting. Uh, the more difficult reading, in other words, the variant that is the more difficult is preferred. And the reason for this is the tendency of a scribe is to copy something that is not as difficult. So, uh, if it's more difficult, everything else being equal, everything else being the same, then the more difficult reading is preferred. Also, the shorter reading is often preferred because a scribe has the tendency of elaborating or expanding or amplifying a biblical text. That's just a natural tendency. So, basic principles. Well, that's the area of textual criticism, and I'm not going to talk any more about it but I wanted you to have a feel for it, mainly for your background and your understanding. And also, since most of you will be ministering to people, people might come up to you and ask, uh, I don't understand what this note means, and now you're in a better position to be able to explain that note in their study Bible and explain what your Bible teacher is, is doing when he's explaining these things. So that's the biblical text, and you want to have a, con- a degree of confidence in the text. For our purposes, we will trust the English version, and we'll take into account the notes that he might include, just to give us an idea that there is a textual issue in the text. 
Next week, we will begin by looking at word studies. Remember, words or terms are the basic building blocks of language. If you don't understand the words themselves, then you're going to be very, very fuzzy in understanding any sentence. So you have to understand the words. So I'm going to give you a process of doing a word study. And I'll give you some examples of a word study. In fact, we'll spend most of next week talking about word studies. And then the assignment that you'll have is to do a word study on a particular word that I'll give you. And you can do it from the English text. And I'll even give you a way that, uh, if you know the Greek text, how you can find the occurrences of the Greek word that is translated by whatever word you're looking at. And one of the things I'll stress is we want to be careful in studying words because of verbal inspiration. We believe the very words are inspired. So, that concludes our study for today. I think I had, who did I have? Eric, you're going to close for us, right? Yes. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for this time we got to spend together to learn about studying your word. Lord, we ask uh, this week as we uh, work on our assignments that you'd uh, give us the wisdom and uh, to uh, apply what we've learned to the study of your word. We ask that you'd open up our eyes to see your word. We ask that you'd write those words upon our heart. Lord, we um, pray for... Uh, Dr. Mondragon, as he prepares for his um, creation science seminar and uh, for next week's class, we pray for uh, all of us in the class as we work on our on our assignments. Lord, we would uh, think of uh, our brothers and sisters around the world tonight that are suffering, suffering persecution, suffering loss. We, we ask that your spirit would come back and you'd, you'd feel them, that you're, uh, you'd give them peace and comfort and you'd strengthen their faith. Or we also ask that you ask that, uh, you work in our lives every day, making us, uh, molding us into the image of, of your son. Lord, we ask all this in the name of your son, our Lord and Savior, Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Eric. Any questions on uh, what we talked about today? We're getting into a little bit more interesting part of the course for interpretation. Everybody okay? Yep, okay.